to uh, realize that I wanted to be a finance major instead of an accountant. Oh, yeah. A lot of people do that. I, mean, I started out to be finance, but uh -huh. counting is detailed. Yeah, it's pretty thorough. Yeah. Yeah. How you guys doing? How are you? Hi, I'm Kirk. What's your name? I'm Kelsey. Hi, Kelsey. Are you from Chico? Yeah, Chico State. Okay. And Tara. Tara. Also from Chico State. I'm having dinner with you guys tonight. So. Okay. So watch what I say and where I go. Okay. Okay. So how many came from Chico State? 28, I think. 20? Really? Yeah. We had, we had three cars or four. Really? Four yeah. Yeah. So where's that name come from, Chico State? It means little man. Well, I understand that, but why, why there? I mean, what's... Uh, I'm not sure where they got Chico from. Is there a town of Chico? But, yeah. There's yeah, a town Chico of Chico. Chico. But I'm, I, don't, I think it was there before Bidwell made the actual... How, how far is that from Oregon? Very far? Uh, about four and a half hours. Four and a half hours. Six. California's so huge. I mean, it's just. Yeah. Well, great. Good to meet you all. How you guys doing? Hi, I'm Kirk. I'm Corey. Good to see you. Where are you from? Chico. Chico. Chico as well. Sloan. Okay, great. Where are you all studying? I'm studying economics. Are you? Yeah. Okay. I'm, and I'm uh, uh, raising a family. Good for you. Working full time. So. How many How many kids do you have? I've got a two year old daughter. Yeah. And one on the way, due in August. So. You'd better work full time. I do. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I work very hard. Yeah. Great. Glad you're here. Yeah. Thanks. <clears throat> okay, all, all the ones here are the ones I couldn't scare away, huh? Hey, Tyler. Hello. Good afternoon.
Okay, here's how we want to do this this afternoon. You see all these verses on here? What we'll do is we'll take turns having you guys read them, okay? And uh, so let's see. We'll start with Anna, and she'll look up the first one, and we'll just go right around, and you can figure out if you're next, and if you don't want to do it, then punch the next person and tell them to do it, okay? No, nothing required, okay. Uh, great. Hey, good to, you know, you guys are paying the price. Come out of the sunshine and the fresh air. Come in here. Learn about what the Bible has to say about money, okay? So glad you're here. Um, I have done a lot of talks over the years on finances. I mean, I've probably done it hundreds of times. And um, um, the Bible has a lot to say about how we handle money. In fact, it, it has more to say about how we handle money than it does heaven and hell put together. So, um, and really it's, it's critically important because the majority of divorces, in the majority of divorces, the primary cause of conflict is money. So, it helps to get that straight. And, and uh, Neil wanted me to talk about handling money in college. And th the truth is, however you handle money right now is how you're going to handle money when you get out. Now, you think you won't. You think, oh, well, I'll do this now, and I'm going to run up this credit card debt. And, you know, well, whatever your patterns are, you're going to hold the same pattern later on. And so uh, we're going to talk about uh, principles for handling money. But really, these principles apply equally well whether you're in college or out of college. They apply to everybody. Um, there are some worksheets or some, uh, I guess I'd call them worksheets, that are attached to this that can be of a help to you. There is a, a group, there's a website called crown.org, crown.org, and I don't know if it's, I'll tell you, if you go to the uh, next to the last page on the back, right down at the bottom, there it is. And these are just a few of the multitude of, uh, of helps that they have free for you online, right down this corner, crown.org, crown.org. And... Uh, it's on the next to the last page, on the back of the page, down the corner. Um, and so uh, there are a lot of helps. When, when I was your age, there weren't many. You know, there was one or two small books about biblical financial principles. Now there's tons of them. Uh, Jeremy mentioned that uh, some, some, of, uh, some of them are working through uh, Financial Peace Seminar, I think is what they call it. It's Dave Ramsey's deal. Excellent stuff. I've not been through Ramsey's stuff. Um, my impression is that Ramsey takes biblical principles, takes the Christian wrapping off of them and, and applies them, and that's just fine. Uh, you know, truth is truth no matter what, what, what dressing you have on it, if I can put it that way. Um, but uh, so Ramsey or Crown, either one will have a lot of good information. And, and as we go through this, I'll be referring to some of those. Okay, who's got Proverbs 16, or Psalm 16.9? Okay. Read them out loud now. My heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. That's the wrong verse. Let's try Proverbs 16, 9. Oh, oh it's a song. I know, I'm wrong. Oh, okay. I'm just doing that to see if you'd find the right, ver right book. Okay. <laughs> Let's try Proverbs. Okay. I do think it's Psalms 24, 1, though. Oh, okay. 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 Okay, the heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. What that's saying is we can make plans, 
But God really directs our steps. And that's what I was talking about earlier. God opens doors and closes doors. So the first thing we have to get in our mind about money is that God owns it all. It's all His. It's not my money or your money. It's all His money. Uh, Psalm 24.1, what does it say? Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. Okay, the earth is the Lord, the Lord's, and everything in it is His. Okay, so <clears throat> if I have a financial problem, God has the resources to solve it. Now, that doesn't mean He's always going to bail me out, but He has the resources to solve it. Uh, so it's all His. And, and so if it's really God's money, then what's my role? Steward. I'm a steward. What's a steward? A little louder. Someone hmm? who takes care of something for someone else? Yeah. A steward is someone who takes care of someone else's property. And so, really, it, it's as if God is immensely wealthy. And when he sees some of us that, are, that handle his wealth in a wise manner, what's he going to do? He's going to give you more. And that, that's the parable of the talents, right? Uh, the parable of the talents, the one who was given ten talents and earned 10 with it, he got more. And the one who was given one and buried it in the ground got that one taken away from him. So, so it's God's money, um, and, and we're merely his steward. That, that really changes things in how, changes in how you view money if you realize it's not your money to start with. It's his money. Uh, some points under that. God has promised to meet our needs. I, Philippians 4.19, go ahead and read it. Okay, my God will meet all your needs. My God will meet all your needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Okay, all of us, if you have a credit card, there's a limit on that card, right? And what's the limit on God's credit card? According to that verse. According to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That's the limit. So if your need exceeds His riches and glory in Christ Jesus, you're in trouble. But until then, you're okay. <laughs> Okay? And he's promised to meet all our needs. Now that, if you read Philippians 4, that's in the context of the Philippian church making sacrificial gifts to Paul to help his ministry, okay? And he's basically saying, you know, this, uh, this gift that you've made, will the, the fruit will abound to your credit, and, and God will meet all your needs. So you, you've been generous with me, God will be generous with you. But God has promised to meet all our needs. The problem is defining what needs are, right? Uh, we think our needs are a new Lexus or that nice apartment or that nice house or that nice outfit at the store or a ski trip. And, and uh, all those are wants. Those aren't needs, right? Those are things we want. Uh, but God has promised to meet our needs. Okay, read Jeremiah 29, 11. Okay, so God's plans are better than our plans. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. You know, people say you ought to set goals in business, and I guess that's not a bad thing. The last time I set goals was January of 1974. Okay? Next year will be 30, 40 years ago. And we had this little business, and, um, and we'd lost all of our business by then. 
And so we had our sales. My father had been doing about a million and a half a year in sales. And, and we were doing, by that time, we were doing less than 200,000 annualized rate of sales, 200,000 a year. And you, you, you couldn't pay the bill. That's just, you know, that's your, your revenues. That's not counting what you had to pay for the merchandise or any of your operating expenses or anything. We could not make our salary at that level. And so I was in this Bible study, and the guy says, make out your goals. And so I made my goal, and my goal was to get sales up from 15000 a month at present rate up to double that by the end of the year, 30000 a month. And sometime the rest of my life, I hope to get them up to 40000 a month. Okay? That was, those were my, and I thought, you know what? If I could do 40000 a month in volume, I could have a van and make a living, and my brother could have a van and make a living, and that'd be great. Okay? Well... It started growing, and we, we did hit that goal. We, we did a little better than that that year. But then it started doubling every year. And within about six or eight years, we were doing about $30 million a year in sales. And my goal was how much? 40000 a month. What would that be? If there are any accounting majors on an annual basis, what would that be? 480000 half a million a year, okay? And we were doing how much? $30 million. Do you think God's plans were bigger than my plans? Okay? I truly believe that if we honor God and, and live our life according to the principles He gives us, He honors that and blesses us far beyond anything we can ask or think. I don't know if Ephesians 3.20 is in here. But who, does anyone know what Ephesians 3.20 says? Someone look it up. Who's going to look it up for me? Let's see a hand. Who wants to, who wants to look it up? There, right there. Look up Ephesians 3.20. This is my kind of guy. He's looking it up on his iPhone. <laughs> yep. Okay, he's got it right back there. He, he beat you to the punch. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. Okay. God is able to do far more abundantly than anything we can ask or think. What does that mean in plain English? He can do more than you can fathom. He, what God is able to do is beyond our wildest dreams. Okay? I mean, we all have dreams for our lives. And, you know, you, you may dream that, uh, you know, you're going to marry a certain guy or a certain girl. God has someone better than that for you. Okay? You may dream you're going to live in a certain house. God has something better than that for you. Um, far beyond anything we can ask or think. That's what God can do. Okay, Isaiah 30, 21. Okay. God guides you. Uh, he says, no, don't go that way. Go this way. He opens and closes doors. One, one of the ways that God guides me is through my wife. I mean, there have been times I've gone to sleep thinking I was going to buy a business the next day, and I wake up the next morning, and she says, I don't know if I like that deal, and so I don't do it. And sure enough, it wouldn't have been a good deal. And so, uh, you know, what, what are some ways God guides us? Who, what are some ways or avenues through which God offers guidance? Through his word. Through his word, yeah. You know, he may uh, say, don't be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. And you're thinking about going into partnership with a person who's not a believer. And you think, well, maybe I shouldn't do that. So one of the ways he does it is through his word. What's another way? Sometimes, sometimes through our parents. Yeah, through, through counselors. Maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's a pastor. Maybe it's a respected friend. 
What's another way? Yep. I'm not making it an option anymore. Beg your pardon? Getting rid of the option for whatever choice it was. Like, say it's a business plan and all of a sudden the business partner pulls out. Okay, yeah, sometimes he closes the door. Like when I ran for United States Senate, I really didn't have much of an option after the election day. I mean, I was done, okay? Sometimes the door closes, okay? And, and sometimes the other people close the door on us. So, but he opens and closes doors. First um, Peter 5, 7. Who's next? Anyone have 1 Peter 5, 7? Okay, First Peter 5, 7 says, Cast all your anxieties on him, for he cares about you. What's our tendency when we have some kind of a problem? If we have a financial challenge, what's our tendency? Try to stress out. Yeah. We start worrying about it, and we're tossing and turning at night about it, and we are trying to figure it out. And what does God want us to do? Cast all your anxieties on Him. Now, this is really pretty gross, but you'll never forget it after I tell you this example, okay? But a friend of mine, I mean, I heard this almost 40 years ago. And he said, that word cast is like fling, like if you flick a burger, booger. It's like that. <laughs> you'll never forget it. Cast all your anxieties. I mean, get rid of it. Yeah, she's shaking her head up here. Okay. <laughs> she thinks I put it on her. Okay. Uh, cast it. Cast all, What we have a tendency to do is hand something to God and then do what? Grab it back. Okay. Cast it on him for he cares about you. So God owns it all. It's not our money. It's his money. And that really changes how you look at money if you, if you realize it's his. Number two is put God first. Give 10%. My dad, when I was a kid, he had... When we uh, wanted to get our allowance, his rule was give 10%, save 10%, and live on the other 80, okay? And so if I had a dime, I'm not joking, if I had a dime a week allowance, I had to show him records where I have given 10% and saved 10% before I'd get this week's allowance, okay? But you know what? It works pretty well. It works pretty well. Uh, so give 10%, give the first 10%. When I went to college, I, um, I was not going to my home church every week, and so I thought, well, I'll pay that when I get home at Christmas time. And, you know, I got home at Christmas time, I didn't quite have the money then, so I thought, well, I'll pay it in summertime. And I don't know, I got behind, um, it was about $450 or something like that. And, and I had beautiful records, I just wasn't paying it. And... Um, um, but God says to honor him with the first part of our income. Who's got Proverbs 3, 9, and 10? Anyone got that? Right there. Okay. Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will run over with new wine. Okay. Honor the Lord with the first part of your income. Now, why does God want us to honor him with the first part of our income? Yeah, well, God's rather practical. He knows that if we wait until you do everything else, there won't be any left, okay? But poor old God is really not needing our money, is he? I mean, he's not, he's not going to go broke if we don't tithe, okay? Uh, when we put something first, what does it say? It's a priority. And so when, we, when I honor God with the first part of my income, I'm, I'm basically saying, God, you know what? 
you gave me the power to earn this. You blessed me to earn this. And I'm acknowledging that. And so I'm bringing this, this first 10% back to you. The first part, you know, and the, the connotation there is not only the first part, it's the best part that, that we bring back to God. Deuteronomy 14.23 in the Living says, the purpose of tithing is to teach you always to put God first in your lives. The purpose of tithing is not to pray the, pay the church and be able to pay the pastor a salary. It's to teach us to put God first. And so we do that by honoring God with the first part of our income. So put God first. And then second, save the next 10%. Live on a margin. Proverbs 21.20 in the Living says, the wise man saves for the future and the foolish man spends whatever he gets. Okay, now how many types of people are in that verse? Wise man saves for the future, foolish man spends whatever he gets. How many types of people there? Two. 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 And who are they? Wise Wise man who saves saves, and the foolish man who spends whatever he gets. And we've invented a third kind of person in modern day America. And that's a person who does what? He spends more than he has. He borrows. He, he spends all that he has, and then he spends more. And the, and the way you do that is with a credit card, or there's all kinds of ways that you can incur debt. Um, and according to this verse, I would say if, if we're in debt, that then we're worse than a fool. Is that fair? Is that fair enough? Um, so pay yourself first. It's not far from the castle to the outhouse now. You all may not even, you don't know what an outhouse is, okay? <laughs> you know, it, but, you know, think, we have a tendency to um, think, oh, well, I've made all this money this year, and I'm going to make more next year, and everything's going to go well, and then, and we're living right on the edge, and then, you know, we lose our job, or then we have health problems, or then, for heaven's sake, the, wife's gets, the wife gets pregnant, we lose her income, you know. And so, um, live on a margin, and so pay yourself next. It, it's almost like you pay, you pay God the first part. Uh, you pay a tithe to honor God with the first part of our income. And then next, we, we pay ourselves. Otherwise, it's like you're, you know, you're paying the butcher, and you're paying the shoemaker, and you're paying the clothing store, and you're paying the apple store, but you're not paying yourself. And that's just not smart. Um, if you, it says, help your, help, help your people learn to save. If, if you uh, work for a company that has some kind of a savings plan where they match part or all of your contribution to like a 401k plan, a retirement plan, you ought to maximize that. Now, is there anyone here that that would apply to yet? Yeah. Okay, because you're, you're in school. But when you get out of school and you go to work, they're going sit to da- sit you down and talk about the retirement plan. You may think, oh, well, I'm not going to be here long, so I'm not going to participate in that. Well, really, in most of those, when you leave, the money goes with you nowadays. And so you ought to participate because you may be thinking, I'm only going to work here at the electric company for a couple of years, and you may spend the next 40 years there. And so save money when you're early. And if you can get your boss to match it, that's a good deal. Now, I say help your people learn to save. Maybe later on you'll be in a place where you have people working for you, Help them learn to save. We had in our business, we had a, a 401k plan. We had, uh, a, when I was there, about 200 people. And we, our deal was if they, they could put in 2%, 4%, or 6% of their pay, and whatever they put in, we matched it 100%. And 
And if we had a good year, we matched it another 50%. So if they would put in 6%, we'd match it, which would be another 6%, and then we'd do another 50%. So it'd be 15% of their pay going into this retirement plan. Okay? I had a girl that um, she uh, started working for us when she was 19 years old in 1981. And she's still, when my brother passed away a couple months ago, she was still working for him. And so she's been with us kind of all together for over 30 years. Um, and, and she's, I'm sure she makes a good, good salary, but, but she's like an executive assistant type. You know, she's not one of the executives. She's uh, a secretary type. And that's what she's done for the last 30 years. One day, years ago, she came up to me and said, hey, do you remember when you told us that if we participated in this plan and we maxed it out, that we'd have over $500,000 in this plan? I said, yeah. She goes, I have over $500,000 in there. A secretary. So, start when you're early and maximize, if, if your boss will match it, maximize that. So live on a margin. And then number four, live on the 80% without debt. Uh, have we lost our track on reading verses? Anyone have Proverbs 22, 7? Okay. Brett. The rich rule over the poor, the borrower is slave to the lender. Okay. The rich, does this verse say, thou shalt not owe money? Does it say that? What does it say? That if, if you do owe money, you are like a slave to the lender. What does that mean? I mean, how... You can't be a slave in modern-day America, can you? So how, how can you be enslaved to a lender? What, what does that look like? Yep. You'll always owe that money, especially like school loans. You can't get away from those, and it'll just ruin your credit if you don't pay it, and you'll just always have to be, you to be taken out of your paychecks no matter whether you want to or not if you aren't like paying them regularly, and you'll just owe lots of money. Yeah, there's a sense in which they own a piece of you, as long as you owe that Oh, that money. Uh, let's say that, that God calls you to go over to Germany with Martha and, and uh, work with students on campuses in Germany. And yet you have this, you have car loans or student loans or whatever they are, credit card loans, and you owe a bunch of money. Are you free to just say, hey, I'm going to go to Germany and serve God. Nope. Praise Jesus. You know, no, you can't do it because, you know, they've got you tied up until you pay that off. So it, the verse is, it's not saying thou shalt not owe money, but it, it lets you know if you do, you're putting yourself into slavery. Putting yourself into slavery. Now let's define debt. Um, and this is, this is debt according to Kirk, okay? I mean, it's just, I'm going to pull this up here so I can see folks better. Um, it, um, here's how I define debt, and I can't point, I can't point to a, a verse in the Bible that says this is what it is, but... Um, I think it's in keeping with this verse. I define debt as when you owe money on anything that cannot be quickly sold for more than the amount owed on it. And so, if I go buy a car, and I owe on the car, and I drive it out of the dealer's lot, and it's a brand new car, and then uh, a month later I said, you know what, I'm, I'm tired of this. I, I think I'll take it back. Is that car, can I, can I sell that car for enough to pay the debt on it? No, I can't. I'm in debt. And that means that I'm, I'm, you know, 
I'm going to have to make these payments to these people at least enough to make up the difference between what I can sell it for and what I owe on it. If I owe on credit cards, so I, I take my wife and kids out to dinner, we have a great time, it's 150 bucks, and I put it on a credit card, and, uh, and I run up 15000 in credit card debt. I can't sell anything there. I mean, if I buy food, if I buy clothes, if I buy trips, I can't sell anything, so I'm in debt. Now, the only thing I can think of, and, and quite frankly, I think student loans is a great example, because you can't sell that either. Um, uh, it, our nation is facing a real crisis on student loans right now. And uh, I'm, on the, I'm on the governing board at the University of Oklahoma, the Regents, and um, we haven't had this discussion yet. I've just gone on the board in, within the last year. But I believe that universities and university presidents and university boards have a moral obligation to students to uh, not steer them down a bad path. And... Uh, um, and yet, as a nation, we're doing exactly that. We're, we're saddling your generation with hundreds of billions of dollars in student loans and, um, and not really where you have a clear understanding of it, what you're getting into when you get into it. And, and um, so, but it's debt. Uh, I think the only thing you can owe money on and not be uh, enslaved, as it describes in this verse is uh, a, a reasonable mortgage on the home you're living in. Now, some folks have gotten in trouble on that in recent years. And that's really, be, in a lot of these markets, they believed it was going to keep going up 50% a year. And, you know, rocket ships don't go up forever. And, uh, but if, it's really hard to get in trouble if you put 20% down on a house and if you're not trying to buy it and flip it and that kind of thing. But a reasonable mortgage on the home you're living in Probably you can sell that home, and if, if you decide to go a different direction in life, you can wash that out and move on down the road and, and uh, get most of your money back, if not all of it, but certainly pay off the mortgage. Um, okay, under live on the 80% without debt, says plan ahead, budget, Proverbs 22.3. Who knows what Proverbs 22.3 says? Yeah, Mary. Okay, a prudent person sees danger ahead and takes precaution. The simpleton goes blindly on and suffers the consequences. And a lot of, I don't know how you view a budget. Um, I think many times over the years people have viewed a budget as something that confines you and it's a bad deal and, ooh, I hate to live on a budget. But the truth is you spend your money more wisely when you have a budget. So let's look at some of these sheets here. The next page it says 30-day diary. And this is basically how do you make a budget. First, first thing you do is you, you uh, find out where your money's been going. And one way to do that is to just write down what you spend every day for a month. Let's say you're married and you decide we want to do this. And so, honestly, at the end of the day, I don't think you have to carry this around with you. But at the end of the day, you can remember what you spent to the penny, I, I believe. And we've done, my wife and I have done this. We don't do it now. But we did it for several years. And, uh, and so on the first day of the month, you know, it shows a place for income and for tithe and for taxes and for housing and different categories. And on the back of the pages are, uh, the page are more categories, okay? So just simply at, for a month, you say, we're going to write down what we spend. You'll find that if you've got to write down what you spend, you spend less. 
And, and also you'll find that the pain of spending is less with plastic than with green cash. It's just a heck of a lot easier to spend plastic, okay? But if, if you know you've got to write it down, you're going to spend money more responsibly. And quite frankly, that would not be a bad practice for a young couple to do for a year or two. And we did. We kept a budget book and a sheet like this and for, for a number of years. Um, we were married about eight years, and I, I was making a lot of money before Dan had ever had a credit card, you know, because we lived on a budget. Um, so that's one thing you do is you do that. And then you, you write out a budget. Once you've kind of gotten the facts, you can look back over your checkbook for, um, you know, the last year or so and see where your money's been going. Um, then you, you make a budget. And by the way, this is going to sound like a cranky old man, but I think debit cards are a poor way to handle money uh, because it's just kind of, you know, uh, I don't know. Y'all, does that make sense or disagree with that? I, I think that, um, I don't know. I, I like spending cash more than I like spending plastic. Uh, and you can argue, well, I've got a record of it with the debit card. Well, that's after the fact and, you know, the bill is due. Okay, the next page, it says budget analysis. And on the back of that page, there are, there's a percentage guide for family income. And so if your family income is 45000 a year, you would want to spend 30% on housing and 12% on food and so on. And those are just guidelines. There's, those are not etched in stone. Uh, different families are going to have different priorities. Uh, and places that you live, you may spend more on transportation and less on housing or vice versa. Uh, but the important thing is it adds up to 100. You know, at the end of the day, your budget can't be more than 100% of your income. So that's just a guideline. But in, on the front of that page, budget analysis, you, uh, I worked through this with my son when he got married, and he made out a budget. He knew how much his income was, and they, they decided what they had to have, and they wrote it all out. And guess how much it was compared to their income? It was too much. It was about 10 to 15% more than their income. And that's normal. If you sit down and think, well, we've got to have this, we've got to have that, it won't work, okay? And so you say, okay, here's what we think we have, existing budget. And the guideline says we ought to do so much, and so we're going to have to trim here and trim there, and then we get down to a new monthly budget. And so you just work through it. And there's, in that one, there's nothing right or wrong. There, there, you know, one size does not fit all. But you come up with a budget. Um, we do this in our business. Uh, we're, we're doing a, um, a development at, on a lake down in eastern Oklahoma. And it's a $14 million project. It's a big project. And we found that we, we spend money more wisely. We employ people more wisely when we have a budget. Because then I can sit in a meeting with my son who's run the project. And I say, wait a minute, our budget's this. You're spending that. You know, he, he knows he has to justify it if, if there's a budget number. And so uh, budgets work. Um, and then the last page there, it says financial statement. Um, okay, where are our accountants in the room? Accountants? Accountant, okay. What's an asset? Asset? It's just like um, pretty much your cash. Really. 
Okay, what's the liability? Things you owe. Okay. And so assets are things you own, like your house, your car, um, your furniture, if it's worth anything, um, you know, that kind of stuff, cash that you have. That, those are your assets. Your liabilities are things you owe. So like if you owe credit card debt, if you owe student loans, if you owe a mortgage on your home, if you owe a car loan, those are the things that you owe. Those are your liabilities. And so the Bible says get the facts at any price and hold on tightly to all the good sense you can get. Okay? So one thing you got to do on, on finances is get the facts, and that's to write down everything you owe and everything that you own. And... Um, you know that show, Biggest Loser? Someone asked me during lunch if I like to watch Biggest Loser. I really don't because I just don't like looking at fat people's bodies that much, okay? But, but <clears throat> on Biggest Loser, well, forget Biggest Loser, please. But anyway, if you've ever tried to lose weight, the first thing you have to do is get on the scales. You've you, you got to face the facts. You've got to say, you know what? I weigh X, you know? And... Uh, and so, you, you know, you get the facts and you face the facts and you say, I'm too heavy or I have too much debt. And so here's what I'm going to do about it. And there's a lots of things you can, if, if you, if you are in debt, then there's ways to close the gap. For instance, you may have, and I'm talking like a married couple now, you may have two cars and you say, you know what, I'm going to sell one car and ride the train on the other one. You know, the other person's going to go to work. Or we're going to move closer to our work so we don't have to have two cars. There's lots of things that you can do to, to close that, that gap. Uh, James 4, 13 through 16. Does anyone have that? Okay. Tyler? Now listen, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business, and make money. Why? You do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast and brag. All such boasting is evil. Okay. That's basically saying don't presume on God. Don't, don't paint God into a corner and expect for him to bail you out. Uh, and that's what we do when we take on debt. We, we think, okay, I'm going to make more next year and so I'll... And a lot of times when we take on debt, there's really not an intelligent thought process. We just do it, you know, because we get to December and we don't have enough money saved up and we got to buy Christmas. So we think, you know what? I can pay that off in January. And so we take on a bunch of debt in January or in December and then we don't pay it off much next year. And so next December we take on more debt. And before we know it, we're $15,000 in debt on credit cards. Um, that's because we're presuming on the future. And God says, don't do that. Okay, so give 10%, save 10%, live on the other 80% without debt. Number five is grow into business, don't go into business. Proverbs 21.5, anyone have that? Okay, Ezra? So the plans of the diligent lead surely to abundance, but everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Okay, everyone who is hasty comes only to poverty. Um, my dad... He, he had a bunch of rules for business, um, rules like every tub has to stand on its own bottom. Does that, does that make sense to you? Every tub has to stand on its own bottom? You know, in other words, whatever you're doing, it has, it has to at least support itself. You know, if, if it's not supporting itself, it's costing us money instead of making us money. Um, 
one of the rules, my dad got deep in debt in, in business uh, back in the 50s. And, and uh, when he got straightened out with Christ, uh, he owed a quarter million dollars. That would be today's money about probably, probably two and a half million dollars. And he owed it to friends and family at high rates of interest. And his stores were losing money. He had seven variety stores, five and ten stores. And, uh, and he really thought he was just going to go down the drain. And that's when a friend shared with him, 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your anxieties on God for he cares about you. And so dad finally said, you know what, God, I'll tell you what, if you want me to go broke, pull the plug and I'll go down the drain. I'll just, I'll start working and you do the worrying. And, and God put him into a new business, his wholesale business that, that I'd mentioned earlier. And, but during those years when dad was trying to pay off debt, he and mom had a rule that if we can't sell it or eat it, we're not going to buy it, you know. And I've got, I got to tell you, we were so poor. <laughs> we were so poor that um, I remember the carpet in the living room was worn clear through to the backing. And we just worn it out and we were down to the backing. Uh, the couch in the living room had springs sticking out, so we threw a, a quilt over it, you know. Um, the first time I ever remember going to a store and buying new clothes, I was in junior high school. And if you can't sell it or eat it, don't buy it. And, and we went from that. When, when my dad died uh, two years ago, he had given away millions and millions of dollars and still had an estate, uh, big estate. So... Uh, I have seen both sides of it. We, we are not immensely wealthy, you know, but we do pretty well. Uh, but there was a time when if we didn't sell it, couldn't sell it or eat it, we didn't buy it. Uh, take care of your business before you raise your standard of living. Proverbs 24, 27. Someone have that? Yep. Put your outdoor work in order and get your fields ready. After that, build your house. Okay. Get your outdoor work in order. Make your fields ready. This is an agricultural analogy. And then build your house. What's it saying? Get a way to make money before going out and spending money. Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't jack up your standard of living before you've established your business. Because your business has to support you. Okay? Um, and, and, and it takes capital to feed a business. I mean, it, it, it takes a certain amount of money to... Provide a business with the working capital that it needs. And it takes, it takes a certain amount of money to provide, to provide a family, a household, with the working capital you need to make it. Okay? And, uh, and so this is saying, don't build your house before you establish your business. But my, analogy, my application of that is, don't jack up your standard of living before you have your business established. Okay? And that, that's true to, for all of us. When you get out of school, you're going to... Uh, uh, Start in a career, probably. And don't go out and borrow a bunch of money and take on a bunch of obligations before you get established in your career. So I would say for a young couple or a young single, move in. If it's a new town, move to the town, rent a place for six months, find out the lay of the land, and then buy a home if you're going to buy a home. It's a real mistake to run into town for a weekend, I think, not know the lay of the land, you buy a home, and then you're stuck with it, and you bought in a neighborhood no one wants. Or you bought on a street no one wants. So um, don't get in a hurry. Um, 
I said, every tub has stems on the bottom. It's on here. Okay. Number six, get the facts, face the facts, make a decision, and do it now. Uh, Proverbs 18, 13. Okay? Spouting off before listening to the fact is both shameful and foolish. <laughs> Isn't that good? What, what, what version is that? New Living. Okay. Read it again, Tim. Spouting off before listening to the facts is both shameful and foolish. Okay. Get the facts. Uh, you know, I, know that I noticed this in um, everything I'm involved in. You know, oh, the city of Oklahoma City has 4,500 employees, about an $800 million a year budget. And, uh, and we have a lot of good people working for us. But there's times that even they don't get the facts before they go down a direction. And it leads to trouble. So first thing you do is you get the facts. Okay. Face the facts. Proverbs 23, 23. Yep. Buy the truth and do not sell it. Also wisdom and instruction and understanding. Okay. Buy the truth and do not sell it. That's kind of a market terminology, isn't it? Okay. Then Proverbs 24, 3. Anyone have that? Okay. Okay. So my dad had a rule in business and I've changed it a little bit. His rule was if it cost more than $25, get three bids. Well, $25 is not what it used to be, but probably today it's $200. Get three bids. And you'll just find if you're dealing with plumbers and you know, guys replacing water heaters and guys doing paint jobs, if a guy thinks he's going to get the job and you're not going to check his price, he's going to throw a high price at you. And so he may say, Oh, it's $800 to do that. Well, someone else may do it for $500. And so I think the way to do it is just say, hey, look, we're, we're going to be checking several prices on this. Give us, your, give us your best price, and we'll let you know if you get it. And I don't, I don't let them come back, and I don't tell them what the com competition's price was. One time, when I was in the wholesale business, we would buy vans, and we'd buy them like 10 at a time. And... Uh, and we had all these specifications. We put it out to bid, and the deal was the low bidder gets it. And they always want to come back in and chisel it after, after the fact, but we wouldn't let them. And so my friend was a car dealer, and he bid on it, and he lost it by $1 per van. And I gave it to the other guy. Well, what did my friend, how did my friend respond to that? He got so mad at his, at his uh, salesman that he said, we're never going to lose another one of those. And so the next time they were $100 per van lower. <laughs> so, so it worked for him, it worked for me. You know, uh, but get three bids. Uh, Proverbs 27, 23, and 24. Who can look that up for me? Okay. Know well the condition of your flocks and herds. What that's saying is understand what's going on in your business or let's say in your family. You may say, Kirk, this doesn't apply to me. I'm not, a, I'm not a business. I'm a junior in college. What would be the condition of your flocks and herds as a junior in college? In other words, what, what financial information would you need to have a hand on if you're a junior in college? Does, 
Does this 30-day diary apply to you as a junior in college? It could, couldn't it? So, so know where you're spending your money. Okay? Have a budget. Know what your budget is. Know whether you're making it or not. Have a financial statement. Know what your assets and liabilities are. Those apply to businesses, yeah, but they apply to all of us, no matter, no matter what our station in life is. And let me tell you what. <clears throat> it's easier to get your act together now than it will be five years from now. And if you get your act together now, it's easier to keep your act together once you have it together. Does that make sense? And so the message on this is, why don't you start doing it right now? You know, let's start saving money now. Let's start, if, if it's not your practice to tithe, and by the way, we're not bound, as, as New Testament believers, we're not bound to give 10% to poor old God, are we? Right? We're not bound by the tithe. Because how much does God own? All of it. And so when we give 10%, we're merely acknowledging that he owns all of it and that he helped us earn it. And so we're giving the first back to him, okay? Those are giving 10%, saving 10%, having a budget. Those apply to a junior in college. And they apply to you when you're two years out of college. And you'll find in any marriage, uh, how many of you all are, uh, th this is a really dangerous question. How many of you all are in some kind of a, quote, serious dating relationship? Okay, we'll see if the other parties know it. Okay, uh, that was all fellas who raised their hands. Okay, <clears throat> we tend to match up with people who are um, not like us. You know, typically in, in, a, in a married couple, you have one who uh, is kind of a tightwad and the other is a spendthrift. Okay, that's just our nature. My wife, when we got married, had never kept a checkbook. I mean, she'd lived in this little town, and if she, if she uh, wrote a check on the bank account and then there wasn't some money in her account, they'd go over to her dad's account and get it out of his account in the little bank in her town, you know. And so it took me a long time. In fact, I've got to tell you, we were married well over 20 years before I finally said to Dan, I said, I'll tell you what, I will never, because I'd get really mad about it when she'd mess up, or I thought she messed up. And finally, after a long time of marriage, I said, okay, I'll tell you what, I will never be harsh with you again about money. And I haven't. But she said, I will remember that. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but God tends to match up one who's real straight-laced about handling money with one who's just real free about it, you know? And that's the way. And so if you find yourself in that situation, don't be surprised. You're normal, okay? And, um, and if you're the one who's disciplined about money, if you don't get it straight going into that marriage, the other person never will. So we need you. Uh, we need you to get your act together uh, before you get into that marriage. Okay. Um, my dad had a ledger book, and this is, goes back to the 60s. Um, and he had a ledger book, with, knowing the state of your flocks and herds, it was a little handwritten ledger. And... Um, I can remember the day, I mean, my, my dad was, he was always a good dad. He was a good husband. Uh, but really, for a long time, he was a driven workaholic, okay? And um, I never understood him before I understood him in business. And so I was in college, and one day he says, well, come here in the, here in the office, I'll show you. And he shows me 
this ledger book that showed, okay, here's how much we buy and here's what we sell it for and here's what we make. And he showed me the business on his little ledger page. And it's almost as if the, the curtain of the Holy of Holies was parted and I finally understood my father, okay? But he was, he was showing me the state of, how he kept track of the state of his flocks and herds. Um, for years, I had a, a ledger book, and I mentioned it, um, that I would write down what I earned, and then I would write down what I gave, and, and I kept that going. And so we found that book the other day, a few months ago. And it was when we were first married, and we were living on $12,000 a year, and I was amazed at how small the numbers were back 40 years ago. Uh, but it's kind of cool stuff to find something that tucked away, or, or we found, we finally threw them away, but we had all of our checks and our bank statements from 40 years ago. And, and, you, and you know, nostalgically, we'd go through those checks, and this fellow I mentioned in my earlier talk, John Crawford, was with the Navigators, and I, I thought, I used to think I gave him 10 bucks a month back in the early days, but really it was 10 bucks whenever he wrote me once a quarter. And so there was a check every few months, 10 bucks, 10 bucks, 10 bucks. But you see that through looking at those old records. I don't think we're going to have that kind of stuff anymore. You know, now we're on Quicken and, uh, and you know, we, we even do our banking on our phone. And I don't think we're going to have that kind of written record that we used to have. Um, I do a... A financial statement every year. My bankers require it. Um, and I do have that back into the 80s. Um, and it's interesting, interesting to see how that, you know, some years we've done really well and made a lot of money. Uh, I've had years I lost a lot of money. Uh, in the last five years with the real estate crash and the financial crash, um, one year I had, I wrote off two projects and wrote off over a million and a half dollars. And that was not funny money. That was real cash that I lost. You know, that really kind of hurt. Hurts, hurts to look at those numbers. Um, but I do think it, if you make a budget and make a financial statement and so on, I would encourage you to stick those in a folder somewhere and keep them because it's, it's instructive to look back at those things. Okay. Uh, keep the lawyers and accountants on tap but not on top. That's one of my dad's lines. Um, uh, you're running your business, you're running your life, and uh, use them. My, my primary goal for my accountant is to, uh, for them to keep me out of prison. Um, and so I, I do not surprise my accountant. Uh, if I'm thinking about, you know, the worst thing you can do in business is go off down a certain path, and then after you're way down the path, then talk to your lawyer and your accountant about it, you know, because you may have really messed up and it's too late to fix it. So the best thing to do is, is uh, the, the cheapest legal fees you'll ever pay are the ones you pay in advance. So you're, uh, this last year we did a, a roll-up of all of our real estate partnerships, and I had um, 32 properties worth about $50 million with 21 different entities that owned a piece of them and 84 different partners that owned a piece of those entities. So I'm dealing with $50 million of other people's money. 
And if you want to get in trouble, just mess up handling other people's money. You'll get free housing from the federal government for life, okay? <clears throat> and so it took me about nine months to put it together, but I was working with my lawyers and with my accountants to make sure that we got it done legally and in the right way so that I was able to uh, stay a free man and my investors were able to get their share of the money in the right way. So there's a place for lawyers and accountants, and typically it's you asking their advice on the front end. Uh, don't, don't go get in a bunch of trouble and then expect them to be able to bail you out because you may have already gone too far down the road. Okay, number seven, be frugal with yourself and generous to others. 2 Corinthians 9, 6 through 8 says, the point is this, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. It's almost like God saying, you know what? Tell you what, you decide how generous you want to be, and that's how, what I'll use to give it back to you. That's what he says. He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do as he has made up his mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And then verse 8 is really great. And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance. So you, you may always have enough of everything and may provide an abundance for every good work. It's God's money. It's, it's the big picture. It's God's, and we're his steward. And so uh, I use 10% as a rule, but what we started doing in our business years ago, my brother and I, we would add 2% to that. We were just kind of, we said, we don't know what we'll make, but th this year we'll give 12. And then next year, this year we'll give 14. And our target now is 30% of our income is what we give away. And I don't say that uh, for any other reason than to say this is something we practice. Um, and we found that you cannot outgive God. Um, Gene War was one of the guys that was a mentor to me. He's with the Lord now. But he had, he had a deal. He, he said, use it up, wear it out, make it do or do without you know, if you don't have enough money for it, use up what you have or, or just do without. First um, Timothy 6, 6 through 8. Anyone have that? The big key on, on money is contentment. Are you content with what God has provided? That's the basic. If he owns it all and, he wanted, and he's promised to meet your needs, then he wants you to be content with what he's provided. And, you know, I, um, we moved about a year and a half ago. We had a home, a historic home in Oklahoma City, 8,000 square feet. I mean, it's a big mansion, okay? We now live in a 1,600-square-foot condo. And so you hear of people my age downsizing. We downsized 80%. And I've got to tell you, it's easier than living in the big house and a heck of a lot cheaper, okay? Um, and so contentment is, is, is not a function of the house you're living in or the car you're driving. Contentment is a function of what's going, of your heart and your mind. And it's just getting yourself rightly aligned with God. Uh, leave a little wheat in the corner. Uh, Leviticus 19, 9, and 10. Would someone read that? Okay. Tyler? When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. 
Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the alien. I am the Lord your God. Okay, what is God saying here? What's, what's the principle? Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't drive such a hard bargain that, that there's nothing left over. Um, back in the biblical days, when you would, when you would um, reap your crop, they said, don't go clear into the corner because there's some poor people that have to come around and they, they, they can't make it other than picking up what's left over in the corners. And that was, that was his plan. Um, I think the principle there for us today, be generous with the little people. Who are the little people in today's society? I, I think one of the little people, groups of little people, are the folks that wait tables in restaurants. Now, is anyone here going to college and waiting tables in restaurants? Okay? Okay? Uh, my wife has just instructed me that I will tip 20%. Because, you know, people waiting tables aren't doing it because it's fun. They're doing it because it's a second job or it, she's a single mom with kids at home and, and or they're a student. They really are people that need a break in life. And that's the principle that Leviticus 19 is talking about. Help, you know, be generous with the people that need a break in life. And so for me, one of those applications is um, people that wait tables. I mean, be gracious to them, be generous with them. Because uh, they probably have a hard go in life. Um, when you're at, eating out with a preacher, pick up the ticket. Galatians 6.6 6 says that we ought to be generous with the people who teach us. And so if, you're, if you uh, see Neil or Jeremy or one of the staff members, buy him a Coke. Buy him a cup of coffee. Okay? Uh, <clears throat> but <clears throat> uh, the, the principle behind that is what they're doing, the, the Bible says the laborer is worthy of his hire. And so these are people that are giving their lives to help us. And we need to uh, help them do what they do. Um, I've been out of OU for 41 years now. And, and every year, every month, I give checks back to the student ministry on the OU campus that helped me. And shouldn't I? I mean, heck, that, I mean, they've helped me with the most important stuff in life. Shouldn't I help them? Do that, and, uh, and that's a biblical principle. So help out the people who've helped you. Um, you know, it, it, my dad, uh, before he died, he, he had gotten Alzheimer's, and, and he came back from Puerto Rico. They'd go down there for a couple of months every year, and, and he uh, came back one year right after he'd been diagnosed, and he said, you know, I read in the Bible that it says that uh, God gave the land as an inheritance to his children. In fact, it says it 99 times in Scripture. He says, I want to give my land as an inheritance to my children. I said, okay. And so he offered it to our generation, myself and my siblings, and we all said, no, I'll give it to our kids. And so over these years, mom and dad have given all their real estate property. It's not quite all done, but they're on pace to give their real estate property and the real estate investments to the grandkids. Um, we need to wrap our minds around the biblical principle of inheritance. And um, I do think it's a biblical principle. I think that we're joint heirs with Christ, for one thing. Uh, 
But I think inheritance is a good thing. And I think when you get to the stage of life that I'm in, one of my important roles in life is to help my kids, not to run their life, not to, for them to be dependent on, on me, but to help them do the things they ought to do. And so um, uh, we set some money aside, and one of my sons was able to go to MIT and get a graduate degree because of that help that we'd given him. Well, that really blessed them to be able to do that. Uh, Annie and Jonathan, he's a pastor in a downtown church in Oklahoma City. They live in a nice home, not a fancy home, but it's a nice home in the market where they minister, and we were able to help them do that. Um, another principle there is what is rewarded gets done. Uh, uh, as you're dealing with people, if you'll set up an incentive system where they're incentivized to do what you want to see them do and what they ought to do, and then you reward that kind of behavior, then, uh, then you're more likely to get folks to do it than if you don't reward them. And then remember to say thank you. Um, if you're at USC, and I know there's folks here from other schools, but I, I can speak with some knowledge about USC. If you're at USC, <clears throat> chances are you're going to be in the top 2, 3, 4, 5% of our society as far as your ability to earn a living. You just are. You may not feel that way. Um, I, I have to remind my wife all the time that the people that we consider normal are the top 2% of Oklahoma City. That's the people we run with. So there are a whole lot more people that aren't in that top 2%. We've all had all this flap in the last year about the one percenters. Let me tell you what, if I got to choose to be a one percenter or not a one percenter, I'll take the one percenter, okay? <clears throat> but remember to say thank you to people. Remember to say thank, thank you to the folks that serve you, even if it's a part of their job. Remember to say thank you to uh, the folks that work with you. Uh, probably, probably the lot they face in life is a lot tougher than the one you face day, day by day. And probably the problems they're facing and the heartache that they're, they're having is a lot tougher than what we face. And so remember to say thank you and, and uh, to be generous with them. Okay, we've got about five minutes left, and we'll open it up for any questions. Yes, ma'am. Okay, her question is, what if you're on a strict budget and you, you don't have enough to go around and you have enough to tithe but not enough to make your payments and, and uh, save? Okay, okay, what is, <clears throat> how are debt and savings related to each other? Debt and savings are opposite. So debt is negative savings. And so if you're reducing debt, you are saving. Does that make sense? If you're reducing debt, it's like you can't save until that's gone. And so if, if you have 10000 in debt, it's almost like you've got to save 10000 to pay off the debt before you can start really saving. Does that make sense? So payments on debt is a form of savings. Now, is that, that may seem uh, contorted thinking, but I believe it's true. And, uh, but let me read a little bit more into your question. I've had people say to me, I can't afford to give. My budget's so tight, I can't afford to give. And that's where <clears throat> I really believe, in fact, I'll tell you a little story. My dad, when he was, 
He left home when he was 14. And so when he was still in high school, one summer he was working in a town in western Oklahoma in a dime store, and he was making <clears throat> five bucks a week. And <clears throat> he had a room in some boarding house and, and uh, living on his own, still in high school. And he went to church that week and he thought, I can't afford to pay my room and my food and still give 50 cents. And he thought, and he put the 50 cents in the plate. And the next day his boss calls him in and he said, I was sitting behind you in church yesterday. And I noticed you put 50 cents in the plate. And dad said, yep. He said, the boss says, you can't afford that. And dad says, I can't afford not to tithe. And the boss said, why don't you move into my house and I'll give you a raise. God honors obedience. He really does. So uh, I would say, yeah, if you don't have enough to tithe and, and, pay your and, and save and pay your debts, then payment on debts is a form of savings. But I would, I would always challenge you to honor God with the first part of your income regardless of your situation. I think he'll honor that. Okay? Other questions? Yep. Uh, should, should I tithe on uh, 10% on the, on the net or the gross? And uh, not to be flipped, but it depends on whether you want to be blessed on the net or the gross. Uh, I, uh, I, I really believe that payroll deductions is a modern invention on our part. And, uh, and uh, I would really challenge you. And 10% is it's just, it's a guideline, okay? But it's a good guideline. Jesus said... You all tithe, and well, you should, he said. So he even endorsed tithing. Um, I would challenge you to try it on, on the gross and say, God, I don't know how this will work out, but I'm going to do it, and I'm going to check. And, you know, God has a way to work things out. He really does. Um, and so I truly believe whatever measure we use to give is the measure God uses to give back to us. Scripture says that. And, uh, and I would challenge you to to tithe based on the 10%, 10 on the gross. But that's up to you and God. Okay? It's between you and God. Okay, maybe one more question. Yeah. Um, do you have any, like, I guess, advice for one who doesn't know uh, where the next piece of income is going to come from and how, like, even rent or food is going to be taken care of in a single month? So, like, what do you do that in? Well, the first thing I'd say is I've never been there. Really, I've never been there. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to throw that to the crowd. Does anyone have advice if, if you don't know where the rent's coming from, where the food money's coming from for the next month, what do you do? Well, Brett? Well, it's a live on support. Uh, we've lived that way for 40-plus years. Just pray and ask God for <clears throat>
pretty, a lot of financial things just circumstances help you flesh out what your strategy should be. But uh, I'm convinced that God is the provider and that your first step, cast that anxiety on Him and then pray and then come up with some strategy to uh, find a job, to find, uh, yeah, God provides an And the truth is, we're all ministers, aren't we? I, I really believe first thing I'd do, I, I'd get on my face before God and I'd make sure that I'm obeying his rules in every way I know how to. Yeah. I'm obeying his principles. And then I would, I would uh, enter my plea before him. I'd say, God, you promised to meet my needs. I'm asking you to do that. Um, uh, and, I, you know, he works in wondrous ways. I've seen that in business. I've, I've seen uh, many times where, where he opened doors and, and provided uh, situations that allowed us to make it in business. Uh, so, man, we pray in business, believe me. Yeah. Anyone else? Tim? Okay, listen, our time is up. Uh, if you have something you want to talk about, I'll be up here. Other than that, we're dismissed. Thank you for coming. God bless you. Yeah. Let me turn this off. <laughs>